to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. All right, here we are, Revelation 5. I'm going to read 1 through 5, and, um, and it goes like this. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back. This book was sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seal? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Verse 4, and I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Love it, love it. A friend of mine said last Sunday, or last Monday night, she's like, you were, you were made to, to preach out of Revelation. And I was like, I agree. I agree. I get so excited. It's the most exciting book of the Bible. Okay, so here we are entering into chapter five, okay? We were in chapters one through three. Chapter one was an introduction to what was happening, who Jesus is, what John is doing, that he's prophesying that it's a prophetic book, and then First, or chapter 2, we're off to the races. Chapter 2, chapter 3, John is prophesying to the church. And he's not playing games. He's not playing like, you know, American 21st century uh, Elijah-less prophecy that everything is good and God only has good things for you. Watch out, your blessing is around the corner. That is not what John is doing. This is the New Testament This is not some kind of, oh, it's the old covenant. Uh, It doesn't apply today. This is New Testament prophecy where John says, I have incredible things for the people of God, but some of them are on the brink of losing it. Some of them are on the brink of their names being blotted out of the book of life. Some of them are on the brink of their lives being thrown on a bed of iniquity and me destroying their children. And I'm speaking to the church because I love them. And if they'll turn to me and believe in me and trust in me, they will sit on my throne. This is God, creator of the universe, promising that we could sit on his throne with him. I don't even understand that. I cannot fathom that promise. That God who created all of times all dimensions, all things visible and invisible, angels, devils, heaven, hell, the creator of the universe would allow you, if you overcome, to sit on his throne with him. It is insane. It is magnificent. It is the opposite of what we we just said this in worship, like, Like a God that invites you to come and sit with him on his throne. It just doesn't work. Like I thought gods were supposed to like keep you down, disempower you, hold you down. They're they're scared of losing their position. Have you ever been around a leader like that or a boss like that? Just hold you down, push you down. I'm not, I'm scared of the gifting. She's like, nope, if you overcome, you sit with me on my throne. 
I think that's incredible. So this is what's being established here, like this, this incredible warning to the church and the incredible reward to the church is established in chapters two and three. It's spoken to the seven churches. It represents the seven churches holistically across the span of time uh, and geography. Every, anyone can fall into any of these positions at any point and anyone can step out of them by obeying Jesus. And then, and then the scene shifts in verse four. John has a separate revelation. It says, and behold, I saw. And then so there's a, there's a change of scenery from this introduction, prophetic imagery to, to the early churches. And now this one's like, we're in four and we're talking about really the events of time playing out and the fulfillment of the purposes and plans of God playing out. So it's this, there's a scene change and John is walking up to a throne room and in the center of the throne is this red crystal object pulsing with life, lightning and thunder shooting out from it, representing the power, beauty, purity, love, and fire of God. Surrounded by this green rainbow, representing the life, mercy, and beauty of God. And it's this paradox of his incredible justice and passion and his love and grace, desire for life, all right there at the center of the throne room. Thanks, thanks, watch. Thanks, demon watch from Apple. You know, I got this Apple watch just because I wanted a mark of the beast on my wrist. Um, trying, to, trying, to, trying to distract me in my message. <laughs> Did you say, come on? <laughs> Transitioning into four, this scene where God's at the center, there's um, elders that represent the eldership of the church and the people of God from the inception, from the patriarch Abraham, into the church, the church of Jesus Christ, book of Acts established, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 24 elders, the fullness of the governance of God, the fullness of the people of God that are faithful to him before the throne, bowing down, God's rule and dominion. One of the things I love about Revelation is like, you really get the picture that's like, God's in control, he really cares about his people, and this story is playing out on the earth. For us, it seems like the world is in control, the devil's in control, secular universities or whatever, systems of governance are in control, and we're kind of skating by, you know, hoping not to get caught by the Apple Watch. But that's not how the story goes when you read it, you, you recognize God's incredible power, control, and intentionality directed toward the church. The church is at the center of his plan and the center of his heart, which means you are at the center of his heart and the center of his plan. Not someone else, not dead people from the past. Actually, you are at the center of God's plan. It is ridiculous. And they got these beasts. This represents creation, the fullness of creation bowing down before the throne. Gabe went over this last week in verses 1 through 11. And then finally, right before the scene changes to play out this narrative on top of the space. Chapter 4 is the space that this narrative plays out on top of. 
but the last picture in this scene is this sea of crystal. Uh, and Gabe was talking about just the process of creating diamonds and crystals, the pressure. The other picture of this sea is that um, it's perfectly stilled. And in the scripture, the sea oftentimes represents the judgment of God. It's churning. The, the destruction of the chariots and the horsemen, right, in the Red Sea. Like seas represent chaos. Nature kind of uh, uh, unfurled and unleashed upon mankind. Sin and death inserted into the cosmos. And in, in God's throne the most wild uh, uh, and untamable elements of the universe come into perfect peace and alignment. And so the sea is perfectly crystalline like glass. Perfect calmness and perfect peace in the throne of God. No one's confused or scared, displaced, but there's incredible peace. There's incredible power and mercy and incredible peace at the same time. For us as humans, like when we get, in, when we get around power sources, it's usually associated with fear. Because power corrupts, and when you, human beings wield power, they generally damage people. But it's not so in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, there's, un, there's incredible power, power that creates the universe, the cosmos, and at the same time, there's incredible peace and stillness on the sea. And, um, and that's the introduction to the scene that's about to play out. So you can all go home now. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so cool. Love it. Verse 1, let's go into this. Verse 5, we just changed from the setting of the scene. And now let's watch the story play out. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written on the inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. I'm going to read Daniel chapter 12, starting with verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting shame and contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those, I was thinking about, Derek, I was thinking about you when I was reading this scripture right here. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever and ever. Verse 4, But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. So here is this first picture in verse, chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sought on the throne. So at the center of this power source, red, jewels, craziness, lightning, thunder. You, he saw God, and in the hand of God was this book, okay? On the book, there's writing in the book. Obviously, it's a book. But there's writing not only on the inside of the book, there's writing on the outside of the book as well. And the book is sealed with seven different seals. 
right here, the book, the scroll, are both referenced in Daniel 12. We've talked about this many times. Revelation is primarily interpreted by reading Revelation, secondarily interpreted by reading the major and minor prophets. Outside of that, it just kind of says what it says, but we are using the scripture to interpret itself. We're not using our wacky ideas. Uh, we're, we're seeing what the scrolls have been. And here in Daniel chapter 12, the scrolls are the ultimate plan of God, the design of God, the plan of God for all mankind and all creation. And so Daniel's seeing here in 12, literally the end of all things wrapping up and people uh, rising from death, the dust of the earth, to being awakened, some to everlasting life. This is the judgment of God where they're rewarded with life forever, life everlasting and some are punished, judged by death everlasting. And then he says, God says to Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. So God has this scroll. This scroll represents the plan and purposes of God, not just the end times plan and purpose of God, but the entire plan and purpose of God. We know this because it's written on the inside and the outside, and it's sealed with seven seals. That means, remember we're talking about seven. Seven means completion or fulfillness or fullness. So it's completely sealed and can only be revealed by God himself. Isaiah 29, 11, for you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you, can, if you give the, some, the scroll to someone who can read it and say, read this, please, they will answer, I can't. It is sealed. Verse 12, or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I do not know how to read. Here's the takeaway here. Verse 12, chapter 12, chapter 5, verse 1. We always want to know the plan of God, but it's not in our purview. Like Christians are always trying to figure out the plan of God. God, tell me when I'm going to get married. God, tell me if I'm going to have a wife. God, tell me what my job is going to be. God, tell me and then I will X. The plan of God, the times and the season, that's in the hands of God and no one can reveal it unless God chooses to do so. Christians are often frustrated because they're trying to divine the plan of God as opposed to just trusting God in the day by day. God, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Not a lamp unto my 10 miles and a light unto my destiny. It's a light unto my feet, my every step. I have to trust you every day. If we got the whole plan, we'd be like, sweet, peace out. I'll see you later. If we got the plan, we wouldn't need faith anymore. And faith is pleasing to God. He's pleased by our trust. He's pleased by him holding the scroll and saying, God, we trust you and we love you. And we know it's going to be good even though we don't understand it. And he's pleased by that kind of faith. And New Yorkers don't like that kind of faith. New Yorkers have five-year plans and 10-year plans and 15-year plans and 401ks and 413bs. And if it's weird or if anything's like, oh, it's too emotional, I don't like it. Uh -huh. Like, too bad, man, read the Bible. It gets crazy. <laughs> right? It is good that the plan of God is sealed. It is good that the purposes of God are unknown. 
It does a work in us that um, translates to faith and thus translates to treasure in heaven. The people that trust and rely on God are rewarded greatly. The people that trust and rely on God through death, right, are rewarded the greatest. The martyrs, like, get the greatest reward. And they're like, God, I'm trusting this plan of yours, and it looks really bad. Like, there's a guillotine going, and it sounds like a bad, bad plan. (laughs) And the plan of God is always good. And whether you understand it or not, Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Now, this is not who is worthy just to know the plan of God, but who is worthy to know the plan of God and perfectly execute the plan of God. So the, the cry coming from the angel is, who's worthy to take the plan of God? And the idea of breaking the seals was a, a legal concept that you are empowered with the directive of the document itself. Not that you just get to like, you know, peek at your horoscope. It's that you're being empowered by the plan of God. And so this is seven seals. This is scroll hand, handed, held by God, the plan of God for mankind for creation for the fullness of God Um, and it represents God's judgment and it represents God's plan over history Romans 8 29 God's plan has been established for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And see, isn't this in perfect keeping with, him, with us being invited to share, on, share his throne, right? Be conformed to the image of the son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that he would create sons and daughters that are like him. And these whom he predestined that God had written in the scroll before you showed up, before I showed up, that was in the plan of God, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. Uh, Beale says this, the book is thus best understood as containing God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but has not yet been completed. Christ has the plan, holds the plan, and is playing out the plan as the architect of the church, playing out the plan for mankind, for the history of mankind, to consummate all things according to the plan of God. And so, This plan was established, it was made. Romans 8 says that he foreknew us, he predestined you and I, that he chose you and picked you out to be a part of this plan, to be be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. You see here in Romans chapter 8, predestination, the direct correlation is conformity to the image of Christ. People want to be predestined, but they don't want to be conformed to the image of Christ. People want to know their salvation is secure, but they don't want to look like Jesus. People want to say, oh, I, I, I'm not going to hell. I hope not. I've been predestined, but I don't want to look like Jesus. I want to do things my own way. Romans chapter 8 has the choosing of God in concert with the conformity to Christ. 
William Craig Lane, um, he was talking about this concept called Molinism, um, or middle knowledge, kind of sounds like Middle Earth, and if you've watched the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon, I'm sorry, I apologize on behalf of Amazon, um, it's horrific, don't watch it. William Craig Lane, um, he says that, imagine that God, he not only was, his mind was so great of infinite capacity, which it is, that he could see every potential or possible iteration of human action for all of time multiplied, and he can choose one where man exercises free will and still aims itself towards the fulfillment of every plan and purpose of God. And the idea is that both humans are predestined and chosen by God, and we still have dignity of humans made in Imago Dei, the image of God, and the ability to exercise will inside of that plan. And yes, those who are submitting to Christ and his conformity are rock and roll, rock and roll on the way to heaven. Love you, love you, love you, love you. You can stay here. But those who are just looking for the golden ticket, the Willy Wonka, chocolate face, yellow tooth, freakish salvation plan, like eat one of those blueberries, get out of here. Is it a blueberry? I don't know, I haven't seen it in a while. Scarring. Okay, so here's the very cool thing about this, another thing about these seven seals. Um, the history says that the seven seals also may have represented a Roman will, and uh, allegedly, this sounds crazy to us lawyers in the, in the room, that you need seven witnesses. Crazy? Seven witnesses to sign a will? Like, all right, take it easy, you know? Uh, in New York State, you need two witnesses and a notary, I think. I'm not a trusted estate's attorney, so don't take my word for that, please. Um, the idea was that seven seals represented the breaking of a testamentary document. That's a document that transfers wealth and value from one party to another party. And so there are seven different seals of seven different witnesses who have said, this is legitimate, and as it's passed and the seals are broken, all of the power that is inside the will is passed to the individual that receives that will. So then God is handing Jesus the plan for all mankind, the fullness of God's plan. Jesus is breaking it over, open and being empowered to play out the plan of God. Um, Beale says, we don't know if this is exactly what, it, what it's there for, but it could have affected... Uh, the way the Holy Spirit communicated to John about that. It's a fun idea. There's more. You can research more about that. I don't feel like going into that. We have about 10 minutes left. And I want to go into the next couple of verses. Verse 3 says this, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. We've been going through the life of King David in the mornings, and we've been walking through, we went through 1 Samuel, we went through Saul as a king, 2 Samuel, we go through David as a king, and one of the main lessons that we learn when we go through the life of these guys is they're all broken people. 
independent if they have faith and they're pursuing God, they all have brokenness. They all have been touched by the sting of death. They've all been touched by the curse. They've been stained to some degree and no one is worthy like Jesus is worthy. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7, surely there is no one righteous, no man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 2, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. Whoever judges one should not judge because you condemn yourself, for you do the same things. Romans 3.9, what then? Are we better than they? In no way. For we have proved both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. The angelic call goes out and says, who is worthy to receive the plan of God in its fullness, know the plan of God in its fullness, execute the plan of God in its fullness? And the answer is no one. And John does this beautiful thing. And it says in verse 4, and I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. There is a filthy perspective by some believer that's like, we're all sinners and that's okay. But we're all sinners and that's not okay. We're all sinners and we want to be redeemed by Christ, or we're in the process of being redeemed by Christ, heading towards our ultimate redemption in Christ. And we are all broken and fallen, and it's painful to look upon. And John breaks down weeping when he recognizes that creation has this stain of sin that's, that's coursing through it. And he knows that he is a representative, like he's in heaven too. And he's one that's not worthy to carry the scroll, to execute the plan of God in perfection. Joel 2, it says this, it says, gather the people and sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged and gather the children, even though those nursing at the breast and let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico or the porch, which is their home where they were resting, let them weep between that place and the altar, saying, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your heritage a reproach, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is God? And this is the spirit that John, as he's looking out, over the heavenly hosts and to some extent over all of creation because that's what all these beasts represent, right? All of the created order that he sees there's no one worthy and it's jarring and painful that's no, that no one's walking in the fullness of the counsel of God other than God himself in Christ Jesus. Verse five says, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. I just A point here um, that I think is important, it is, it's important for the church to weep. The church doesn't weep much, not in America, not in the 21st century. Church doesn't weep about their sin. It doesn't weep about brokenness. It doesn't 
weep about 13-year-olds having mastectomies. It doesn't weep about the tragedy in our culture. It doesn't weep about these things. It's kind of just, we all float on okay. We're just all floating on until we get to heaven. The church has stopped weeping. And it's time for a weeping church to come back. It's time for a people to weep before the porch, their comfortable place and the altar, that they're carrying a burden of God for the nation, that they're weeping on behalf of the nation. Um, and then there's a time to stop weeping where the angel says, or the elder looks and says, stop weeping for behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. Uh, worship team, you can come on up and I want to read. These two scriptures, one about the line of Judah and one about the root of David, just because they're both really powerful Genesis 49.8, Judah, your brothers will praise you and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine and his colt to the choicest branch and he will wash his garments in wine. He will wash his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is a prophecy from uh, the patriarch to the 12 sons. Each of the 12 sons get their own prophecy and this prophecy goes to Judah. It says, Judah, you're like a lion. And this is a prophecy not just about the nation of Judah, but ultimately about Jesus. See, the, the, if you follow the history of the 12 tribes, 10 of them, they decide they don't need to follow God anymore. And they intermarry. They lose their adherence to God and his law and his way. And they completely lose their national identity in totality. They just coagulate with the culture and become nothing. That's what the church, that's what the culture, that's what the enemy wants to happen in the church. That we forget the law of God, we forget the identity of belonging to God, we forget walking in his way, and we just become mediocre, pathetic, lukewarm, just the same as the culture. And then we're washed away, and this is what happens to the ten tribes if you follow the history of Israel. But Judah and Benjamin, it is not so, and Judah holds fast to the law of God. Genesis 49, 8 says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow to you. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one that's committed to his father. He's the one that's victorious in battle. He's the one that his teeth are whiter than milk and his eyes darker than wine. Isaiah 11, 1, the root of David then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes sees nor make decisions by what his ears hear but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the humble of the earth. Um, 
it goes on and then verse 10 it says, and then on that day the nations will resort or come to or hide under the root of Jesse who stands as a signal flag for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. And the promise is from the elder is stop weeping, John. I know it's a pain and I know there's brokenness, but Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the lion. He is the victor. He is the beautiful one. And the plan has been in play since the beginning of the world. He is the root of Jesse. And all the nations of the earth that call upon his name will find refuge in him. And this is Jesus who is worthy to take the scroll, the plan of God, and execute it on our behalf. You and me, 31 Monroe, fourth floor, 7.40, what time is it? 7.18. And his plan is played out through his church and through his people and people that are willing to call upon him in faith and be conformed to his image and have a place in the eternal adventure of God. I like Revelation because something has told me since I was a boy, there's something much more and much bigger and much greater out there. And you read the word of God and it's true. There is. And he's called us to participate in it. Not in a passive way, but actively participate in the plan of God. Amen, church. Why don't you stand with me? Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Acts 2027 20, says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And that's something that we're trying to do at King's Church. We're trying to steward God's word and share it to a generation. If you want to partner in us sharing the whole counsel of God's truth, please text KCNYC to 77977 and partner with us here at King's Church to get God's message, his whole counsel, all over the place on podcasts and on radio and around the world. So believers like you would be encouraged. Thanks.